0: the gospel's end, saying about Jesus, that having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. He loved them despite their sins, despite their righteousnesses. And in this chapter here, we're going to be seeing that um, uh, he preserved his disciples and he won his brothers to himself, brothers who did not believe in him, thought he was crazy. And uh, let's read beginning at verse 12. Actually, let's begin at verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Elpheus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is our desire that we would learn more and more to tremble at your word and to follow it. And I pray that uh, you would cause us to not only intellectually uh, take these uh, uh, ideas in that you have given to us, but that we would live them out to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we started looking at some of the preparations that the Lord was doing in their lives to prepare them uh, for Pentecost and these were the inward preparations. Today I'd like to look at some of the outward, historical, um, you could say objective and uh, even corporate preparations that God was uh, doing for them. And another way of saying this is that Pentecost was Uh, when it came, something personal was going on, but there was also something of historical significance. And so what theologians have done is they've taken two Latin phrases to distinguish two different things, ordo salutis and historia salutis. Now, ordo salutis, order of salvation, talks about the order in which God's grace was working within our lives. Uh, Things like effectual calling and regeneration, faith, justification, sanctification, Glorification. And there is other things as well. When does the baptism of the Spirit occur And the sealing? Those are all order salutis. But the Historia salutis was the order in which God was revealing his plan of salvation from the time of Adam all the way up through Pentecost and the, the fulfillment of those various things. And both of those are very important to understand. Um, uh, we were given the Spirit... Uh, At the time that we came to faith in Christ, at least after Pentecost, that was the one way it uh, it worked. But there was a time when the Spirit was given to the church itself. And that happened at one time on Pentecost Day. That would be Historia Salutis. Our inward infilling is the Ordo Salutis. Now, many people, unfortunately, confuse the two. They will go to Acts chapter 2 and they will apply things that are very unique to the Historia Salutis. Things like the wind and the fire and there's going to be other things we'll look at in Acts chapter 2 and they apply it to the Ordo Salutis and it's a misapplication and so it causes some confusion. And we'll look at that more at uh, a later time once we get to Acts chapter 2. But I'm going to begin the development of some of the Historia Salutis in chapter 1. And this preparation uh, of God's redemptive history... Uh, I think once you begin to understand it, it'll really open up what's happening in the next uh, few chapters. We're not going to get very far, so don't get discouraged. We're only going to cover three verses today. But I think over time you're going to see, man, it's just beautiful the way in which the Lord has been historically preparing his people uh, for this time. Uh, Let's start reading at verse 12. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Now, what a beautiful place for Christ to be signaling the soon coming of Pentecost because this was the mountain on which priests, a few days before every one of the seven major festivals, also lit signal fires, as it were, and uh, they did it on the new moon because sometimes it was overcast, people didn't know when the new moon would be, and so they show up late for for the festival. And so what they did to solve that is on the Mount of Olives, they would, on the new moon, have these signal fires that would be lit, not just for Jerusalem, but it would go from mountain to mountaintop all the way to Babylon so that very, very quickly they could let people know, okay, start counting, and uh, this is the time to come for uh, Pentecost or for any other of the, of the uh, festivals that uh, were going to happen. And so what Jesus was doing, and any Jew who was reading this would immediately say, this is so cool. Christ is, as it were, lighting a signal fire when he is telling the people... I want you to go to Jerusalem, and I want you to wait for the Spirit. Wait for Pentecost, and from there, go out to the nations. Next uh, phrase there, he went uh, from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. Uh, it had to be in Jerusalem, because all of the prophets said that the kingdom would start there. A Sabbath day's journey, it says. Now, this is not something that's uh, indicating how we should keep the Sabbath. This was a... A phrase that was used over and over again, and every Jew would understand this is a measurement of time. It wasn't the Sabbath day anyway. If you'll remember, this is the 40th day since the resurrection, so it was Thursday, right? So he's not saying they couldn't walk any further on this day because it was the Sabbath. What, they were, uh, what the text here is saying is that they were going a specific distance, and it's 2,000 cubits, and any Jew of that day would know exactly where that would take you to. Uh, uh, It was about three-quarters of a mile and this first picture that is up here uh, you'll be able to see um, The Temple Mount we're actually looking at it from the top of the Mount of Olives and It's looking straight at the Dome of the Rock, which was right where the uh, Temple Mount used to be and uh, right around here you'll see some uh, uh, Walls And you'll see all of the houses are on the other side of that temple. There aren't any houses on this side of the wall because that wall kept the city from expanding out toward the Mount of Olives. That was true today. That's true uh, at the time um, of uh, Christ as well. And when a priest would light a fire on the Mount of Olives... Uh, he would do so at night time. And so if it happened to be a, um, a New moon that was right before the Sabbath He could only according to pharisaic tradition not according to the Bible that was adding to it But according to pharisaic tradition, he could only travel those 2,000 cubits And so where he would end up would be in the temple and he had have to stay there overnight He couldn't travel any further now the next slide gives a close-up view of the dome of the rock from the Mount of Olives with a, a telephoto and again, you'll notice the um, the wall that's right in the front there. And the text says that they entered Jerusalem, and when they did so, it would have been through a gate right to the right of this, and the only buildings that they would have been able to uh, get to would be the temple complex. Now, this was a massive complex, 42 acres that it covered. And... Uh, then it says in the next phrase in verse 13, when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Now, there's difference of opinion amongst scholars as to whether this was the upper room that they had the Lord's Supper in or some other upper room like that, or whether this is an upper room in in the um, a temple. And even though there's a different Greek word for upper room used here than is in the Gospels, I guess just on the surface of it. That could be a a correct theory, but I think it misses out on the geography and the specific distance uh, that was given. Any Jew of that time uh, would would have been very familiar with the Mount of Olives. And you travel 2,000 cubits, there wouldn't be any other building except for the temple that you would have gotten to. And so I hold to the latter view that this was an upper room in the temple complex Hold to it for two reasons, uh, I mean, several reasons. I've already given two. The distance that was given, and then it says when they entered Jerusalem, they went into the upper room. Well, if you look at the, uh, the slide up there, the only thing, the only building that you could enter into the moment you get through those walls is the temple. Third, the word for staying there does not indicate living somewhere, as if there were, this was their living quarters. And, Just reading the text, I think you would guess at that, because it's one room that they are uh, staying in, and yet there's men and women. You know, it's probably very unlikely that they're sleeping in that one room uh, day and night. And the word uh, for staying is a rare word. This is the only time that it occurs in the New Testament. And it means literally waiting according to. Waiting according to. According to what? Well, I believe it was waiting according to the commandment that Jesus has just given them to wait or to stay in one place. And uh, Luke and the last uh, verse of the Gospel of Luke has already told us, and we'll be getting to that verse in a little bit, but he's told them to go straight to the temple, and that's where they were waiting. Now, fourth, there were indeed upper rooms in the temple. And uh, the slide here, it gives one model of the temple And again, keep in mind, this is a massive, massive building. It's uh, 42 acres. And uh, I believe that the house portion of this uh, temple is the complex right over here, sometimes called Herod's Portico. Sometimes it's referred to as Solomon's Porch. Uh, But it was a huge area that could house thousands and thousands of people. Now, there are other people who say that uh, the house is the house of Avtinas That's right over here on the south side of the temple proper. This is the temple proper. This is um, this is south, and so that would be east over there. But uh, that is one possible theory. There's three potential theories for where in the temple uh, the house that Acts two two um, uh, talks about. Okay, one more. Uh, Turn with me to the last verse of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, This is part two of a history that he was writing for Theophilus, and Acts repeats the history of what Luke ends with, and it tells us exactly where they made a beeline for when they went into Jerusalem. And let's begin reading at verse 51. It says, now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God now two words to note there the word continually in the Greek is two words and it means through the whole and virtually everybody means through the whole time and so that 's why they translate it continually through the entire time that they were there they were in the temple now um, Now, the NIV study Bible thinks, well, maybe it was just during the daylight hours that they were there. And others say, well, the words seem to indicate, like Anna, they never left the temple for those 10 days. Uh, And then the other word to notice is returned. It indicates that where they continued, they had been before. And so taken together, it means through to the time of Pentecost, they did not leave the temple for at least 10 days. Now, the reason this is so important is that Ezekiel's prophecy of the temple and of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit, says that the Spirit is going to be poured out in the temple and it's going to be poured out on the south side of the temple and then the Spirit uh, would leave through the east gate um, and uh, he symbolizes it by way of a river. He would do that through his people forming a... Uh, a new synagogue. In fact, Ezekiel says that there's two times that the Spirit was going to leave the temple. One time was in Ezekiel's day uh, because the church had so apostatized, they said the Spirit's glory is going to completely leave. And then in later chapters of Ezekiel, it says there's going to be a future leaving, and that's what's going on in the uh, first century after the death of Christ. Now, I think the parallels between the first leaving and the second are just remarkable on point after point. And so let me just cover those for you. In Ezekiel 10, the Spirit leaves the temple proper, goes over the threshold, just like later it talks about. That's chapter 10, verse 18. He moves to the south side of the temple's outer court. That's uh, chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, and then verse 18. And so uh, that would be way over here on the south side, and then leaving through the east gate would be on the top over there. That's chapter 10, verse 19, 11, verses 1 and following. Then he moves away from Israel toward the east, uh, through the east gate. And he indicates that the Spirit is going to move into the remnant of his people who have been cast into Babylon. And in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 16, he calls this little group of people his little sanctuary or his little holy place. And so even though he's telling Ezekiel, I'm going to destroy this temple. I'm so fed up with the people that they're going to be cast away. He says, don't give up hope. It's not like I'm completely casting everyone away. There is a remnant of Israel that I'm going to reconstitute as the new Israel. And when he looks back at the old Israel, he says, they're not Israel anymore. They're Sodom and they are Gomorrah. Uh, But uh, he comforts his people that instead of now having a temple of brick and mortar He's going to have a temple of flesh and blood and he's going to be dwelling in the midst of his people So that's the first time that's Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11 And it parallels the second time in many details The second time describes a future Reconstructed temple first one got torn down under Nebuchadnezzar There's a future reconstructed temple. I believe it was Herod's temple because it speaks of it as being in the time of Messiah. And the spirit poured out in exactly the same way. It speaks of upper rooms in that Ezekiel passage. Then in chapter 44, it says that after God, the God of Israel. In fact, why don't you put up the next slide just real briefly. After the God of Israel walks through the eastern gate. And this is a picture of the eastern gate there that God is going to make sure that that gate is walled up. And uh, Jesus walked into this, the triumphal entry. He walks out of that. And it's very interesting. All in front of this whole area are tombstones. And the reason that those are put there is because the Jews did not believe that the Messiah has come yet. So they're still looking for a fulfillment of Messiah to walk through those, uh, th- that gate there. And the Muslims say, we're going to make sure that this can't be fulfilled. So they wall it all up, and they plant a whole bunch of graveyards in front. They think that the Messiah would never go through those graves, apparently. And uh, little do they realize it's already been fulfilled to a T. Anyway, I want you to go back to the previous overhead. Ezekiel, in the next chapters, uh, continues to describe this temple. And in verse 47, says that the Holy Spirit, symbolized by a river would leave the temple once again. It starts as a trickle again to the south side of the, of the altar, which would be over in that, in that section of the temple complex, flows out of the east gate, just like at the first time, grows into a huge river that eventually brings healing to the whole world. That's exactly what happened at Pentecost. God's Spirit was poured out in the temple, made the remnant of Israel into his tabernacle, as he promised in Ezekiel uh, 37. And whether you believe that the house of Acts 2, verse 2, is the entire temple complex, which is the way some people take it, or if it's the house of um, uh, Avtenas, up in that section, or if it's the the southern portico over there, it's clearly to the south that the Spirit was poured out upon his people. And as spirit-filled Christians leave the uh, temple, that little trickle, becomes a broader and a broader river he says if initially it was up to his ankles then it's up to his knees and finally it's so broad he can't even swim over it and eventually it brings healing to the whole world that's the imagery and i believe that was what was in luke's mind along with some other prophecies we'll look uh, at later when he's writing these first uh, couple of chapters and um we're having to go through this a little bit slowly because there are so many objections to this interpretation. There's a lot that hangs on it in, in Acts chapter 2. Now, one objection that people bring up is that disciples would never have been allowed into the temple. They're a persecuted minority. Why in the world would they be going into the temple? That's a sure way for them to get arrested. But um, that is simply not the case. Um, There are constant references to the whole church gathering in the temple, and I want you to turn with me to a couple of those. Acts 2, verse 46. This is after Pentecost. There's already 3,000 believers that have gathered together. And it says here in uh, verse 46, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. So they didn't have to remain in the temple after Pentecost, but they continued to worship at the temple, and then they broke either communion, or some people say, no, that's just their meals that they had uh, from house to house. But it's obvious, even after hostilities, they're worshiping as a church somewhere on the temple facilities. Uh, Look next at chapter 3 and verse 11. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. Uh, Solomon's porch, there's differences of opinion. Some people think that um, uh, Solomon's porch is uh, a section over here on the southeast, and others say, no, it's, it's a part of this huge complex known as Herod's Basilica or a southern uh, portico up there. So that's uh, Acts 3, verse 11. Now look at chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all, not just a few of them, but they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Now what those verses indicated, there's multiple thousands by this time. Um, I don't know how many it would have been probably over 10,000 by this time and yet they're a cohesive group meeting in one place in the temple Separate from the rest of the people how in the world could that go on the priests can't forbid them. Well, how how does that happen? Well, what was going on in the first century is that there were a lot of denominations They speak of them as sects of judaism s-e-c-t-s and uh, these denominations were able to rent various portions of the temple and uh, meet together there. And there wasn't a whole lot that the priests could do about it unless they brought them up on charges. Uh, they couldn't evict them. They've already given their rent money, and so it's theirs to, uh, to meet at. And so that's what's going on in those passages. Um, let me show you another picture. This is a, a painting, another model of the, the temple. And and this is oriented just a little bit differently Let me get my bearings here. Okay, this would be This would be the south south over here and since the uh, temple always faces east is That correct that would be west that would be west. It's upside down. I think it's inverted. It should be going to the east uh, on that temple, but anyway, What I want you to notice on here is uh, the court of the gentiles is this whole section all the way around the periphery That's 35 acres and it was a massive uh, area. The whole complex was 40 uh, 42 acres large And uh, there were it was able to accommodate 400,000 to some of the festivals had over a million pilgrims that were in that temple complex and so God is setting up a time when huge numbers of people are going to be able to be witnessed to. Now, you still do have a problem. One very legitimate objection that has, I've not seen raised, but uh, very easily could be raised, is how in the world were they ma- able to manage to rent one of those areas? You had to have a Levite who would represent you. And uh, John Gill and other commentators believe that Barnabas was that representative. Uh, if you turn with me to Acts 4... Uh, if you turn with me to Acts 4 and verses 36 through 37, it says, "...and Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet." So he was a Levite, and therefore he would have had special perks in the temple... He appears to be wealthy, he had land in Jerusalem, and he was one of the 120, the people who had been uh, with Christ in his ministry. And so he would have been a perfect candidate, they say, for uh, being able to rent rooms that other people could meet in. Uh, His cousin Mark was also a Levite uh, who was rather prominent, and some people believe that Luke himself was a Levite. Now, most people think he was a Gentile based on three or four arguments. I've got a whole mess of arguments um, that various people have pulled together showing that he had to be a Jew. If you look at the internal evidence of Luke and Acts, boy, there's a lot of stuff to show that he, he probably was a Levite, uh, intimate acquaintance with Levitical rituals and uh, some of the things that went on in the inner parts of the temple. But in any case, he had to be a Jew. Uh, for example, there's a lot of Hebraic expressions that no, no Greek speaker that wasn't a Jew would have used. And um, they're called Semitisms. But anyway, just leaving Luke aside, we already have a candidate that uh, could have easily have rented that, not only for the time of the uh, disciples all the way through Acts 6, but could have rented it for Christ earlier as well uh, in the meetings that uh, he was gathering together. Now that brings up another objection. Did the temple even have upper rooms? And I've already anticipated it with uh, some of the different um, rooms. And if you'd put up the next slide, Joel, um, you can see on here, you can see on any of the slides that there are upper rooms on each of the, on each of the drawings. Nobody knows for sure what Herod's temple looked like. And uh, So some of them have more buildings than others do. Wow, that really didn't turn out very well, did it? Um, but every one of the drawings has different temples. You can see uh, windows here, 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 and there's actually ones on the, all the way around the periphery. And what I want to do is just give you some scriptures indicating that there were upper rooms. I've heard this so many times, people saying, oh, there weren't any upper rooms in the temple. That can't possibly be the temple. So let me just give you a few of those to show you. Even in the original temple, First Chronicles 28 includes upper rooms, verses 11 through 12. In Ezekiel six, which describes this temple, he says to Ezekiel, The side chambers were in three stories, one above the other, 30 chambers in each story. However, the temple area, verse 16, says, Galleries all around, there are three stories opposite the threshold. Chapter 42, opposite the pavement of the outer court was gallery against gallery in three stories. Verse 5 speaks of upper chambers, middle and lower stories of the building. The next chapter says the same. And so every part of that temple, the inside walls, the outside walls, uh, as well as the buildings, had at least three stories, according to Ezekiel. And I believe it's Ezekiel's temple that the Holy Spirit fell down in. One other objection that's frequently given is that the Gospel of Luke earlier referred to the upper room, we mentioned, that uh, they met in, and... If Theophilus was reading consecutively Luke through Acts, he's just read about them meeting in an upper room. First thing that's going to come into his mind is the upper room they were in before. We'd say, no, it wasn't. Not if he was reading it in the Greek, because there's a different Greek word that's used here, as is used in Luke. And secondly, even though this is a common word for upper room, this word is exactly the same word that's used in the Septuagint translation of the Ezekiel passage. Another objection I have uh, frequently heard is you couldn't sit in the temple. And so since Acts chapter 2 says that they were sitting when the Holy Spirit fell, this couldn't be the temple. Well, let me just read you a couple of scriptures to show this simply is not true. Matthew 26, 55, Jesus says, I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. So it's not just one person sitting, I sat with you, implying they were sitting as well. Uh, Luke 2 46 says about Jesus when he was a child, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers. And so there's teachers all sitting around. Jesus is sitting. He's not a teacher, but he's sitting right along with them and other scriptures like John 8 two. And the truth of the matter is even secular history says that there were huge numbers of rooms large enough to ac- accommodate crowds and they had benches. They were able to uh, sit in all of those and so where is the best place for them to wait in the temple? And Jesus actually commands them when the word for waiting is to sit in Jerusalem. me. Now there's another objection that's brought against this, and that is in Acts chapter two verse two. It says, "And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing, mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. You see, it's very clear, they were in a house. They were not in the temple. And uh, I've already anticipated that to some degree. But I want you to notice here that it doesn't say that the sound filled Jerusalem. It filled the house. And secondly, Luke makes clear who were the ones who heard that sound. Look at verses 5 and 6. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So these are the pilgrims who have come all over the world. Just hundreds of thousands of these uh, pilgrims have come. And then it says in the next verse, and when the sound occurred, the multitude, not a multitude, but the multitude he's just finished talking about, all of these pilgrims, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And so if it was a, a, a private house, my question would be, how in the world would you have gotten all of these massive numbers of people together in front of a house? Um, You know, they would have been, if the disciples were off in a different building, they would have been scattered throughout Jerusalem as well, eating their meals and doing whatever, unless this was the time when they gathered all together in the temple for the festival. And uh, I would also say, secondly, how could they see the apostles and come together to witness them preaching? It must have been a massive plaza in front of this um, house, Enough to accommodate not only the 3,000 that got saved, but many, many more who didn't get saved. To me, it's almost inconceivable that you could find a house in Jerusalem that would fit uh, uh, all of uh, those um, requirements. And somebody might say, well, what about the temple? How could they hear uh, within the temple? And uh, the next slide here is a picture from a different angle that'll show you how massive numbers of people would have been able to hear perfectly from a number of vantage points. And again, I uh, apologize because this is a different orientation than the other ones are. The big building right here in the middle is the temple proper and this is facing east. This one over here is the Herod's Basilica and on the temple interpretation, there's three different views of where the house could be. Some people say it filled the house means it filled the whole temple, and so everybody in the temple heard it, um, and other people say the house that they were staying in was actually the house of um, Avtinas, and that's right over here, and i Peter was sitting on top of that building right there, you can see that he would have been able to preach to massive numbers of people. Everybody in the southern portico here would have been able to hear him, which is multiplied thousands. Everybody in the court of the Gentiles is right around that periphery and on the walls. And then the people that are standing on the walls here would have been able to hear it. So that'd be a perfect place for Peter to speak. Now my, I'm leaning, I'm not dogmatic on this, but I'm leaning to this particular house being the one that they were in on the top uh, story and if they were up there again, they would have been able to um, You know speak and massive numbers of people be able to to hear them from that and by the way There are a number of places that speak of a house being separate from the temple but within the temple complex Uh, Luke 11.51 is one example between the altar and the house is the literal Greek, but it's translated in the New King James between the altar and the temple. It's exactly the same word that's here in Acts 2, verse 2. And so the NIV study Bible says, Evidently some place in the temple precincts for the apostles were continually in the temple. Luke 24.53. And then you turn to Luke 24.53. NIV study Bible says, During the period of time immediately following Christ's ascension, the believers met continually at the temple where many rooms were available for meetings. And so let me just sum up uh, this little section. I know it's been kind of long and, and tedious, but what probably was happening, whether he was here or over here, it had to be south of the altar, according to Ezekiel. What probably was happening is that Peter was up here on top of the, the portico. And as soon as they heard the sound, people from all of the areas right around in the court of the Gentiles were rushing over there. The people on this wall would have been able to see the people on this. The only ones who probably wouldn't have had direct eye contact would be in the lower portions of, of the portico. And uh, uh, it was a perfect lectern for him to, to preach from. Uh, why don't you put up one more slide, and you can just see another another view of that house, and maybe this one might be a little bit clearer. And then you can see the three stories, the rooms that are up in the top there, and that's the southern portico. Now I'll get back to that again in in Acts chapter 2. That's as far as we'll go right now. But let's go back to Acts 1, verse 13, and just go through this uh, uh, phrase by phrase, these two verses here. When they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying or where they were waiting according to. And here's the people that were waiting. Peter, James, John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is these were all Jews. They didn't have to cross over any ethnic or cultural uh, obstacles, you know, they're able to be a cohesive group and work together. In fact, they weren't just Jews They were Galileans. If you look at chapter 11 I mean, chapter 1 verse 11, the Angel has talked to them and he says uh, men of Galilee. Why do you stand here gazing? They are all Galileans and the This is the way Christ was working all through his ministry. He ministered to Jews he collected a core group that would be able to uh, minister together, even though there were many people that were um, Gentiles who were being saved. His core group was a cohesive group that all had the same uh, culture. And this is so different from what I was taught in seminary that I thought it deserves a little bit of comment. One modern uh, pastor uh, illustrates this, uh, this philosophy when he says this. He was praying for, quote, a heterogeneous group, church, a group of believers that was a microcosm of the church universal. If persons from all walks of life, cultures, races, church affiliations, and doctrinal divergences make up the true body of Christ, why could we not in one local church have the same diversity? That's a noble aspiration. It's an aspiration I had when we started this congregation. I thought it'd be cool if we could have, you know, 40% minorities in this congregation. Maybe the Lord will grant that at some point in the future, But the point is, a church can only have really one culture in terms of style of worship and things like that. And not everybody feels the most comfortable in one church situation versus another church situation. And so even though Jesus won a lot of Gentiles, why did he start here with a cohesive group of Galileans? Didn't even have to cross the Galilean cultural gap to other kinds of Israelis. And I think there were two reasons first reason is it is enormously difficult for unbelievers to cross over and become Christians if there's all kinds of fences in the way. Cultural fences, language fences, you know, if we had to translate into three languages, well, praise God, you know, that'd be great. If people were coming, we'd do it, right? But it makes it more difficult, the more fences that you have to cross over. Nothing wrong with having people who are predominantly from one culture or race, And uh, I think that's where people feel the most comfortable. I used to think this is so wrong to have churches that are, uh, you know, segmented like this. So long as you're not excluding people and people feel comfortable coming in, I don't think there's anything wrong. There's going to be a tendency to gravitate toward what uh, is comfortable. And uh, let me just define three terms. There's E1 evangelism, E2 and E3 evangelism. E1 is where Americans are... Ministering to other Americans and they're evangelizing them. E2 would be like an Anglo-American uh, evangelizing a Mexican-American or, or something like that. E3 would be where an Anglo-American would go all the way over to Ethiopia and he'd begin evangelizing the Messiah. And a number of uh, people who work in missions say there's less than 1% of Christians who are effective in going cross-cultural in their ministry. Very few. Paul was an exception. The other disciples didn't appear to be able to do that. Barnabas was another exception. And um, I think some real neat things come out in Acts chapter 6 when you realize Jesus was just being practical when he said to be effective, at least the core group, that's uh, ministering together needs to make sure they don't have the obstacles, they're able to move forward. Now, that does not justify racism. We'll never tolerate racism in this church. But what it does indicate is God has, yes, differences within the congregation, but he has different congregations as well. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should not judge other congregations because they're culturally different than us or they do things. They have different styles of worship. That was the main point. Second... Why the twelve apostles? Because they. This is um, the second reason why I think Christ had a cohesive group. He was not replacing Israel with something totally different. What he was doing, just like in the time of Ezekiel, Ezekiel had a remnant of Israel who became the new Israel. That's what's happening here. Um, he reconstituted a new Israel. Took the remnant, and he said, "This is now going to be my sanctuary. I'm going to put my spirit in them." And just as in the time of Ezekiel, he looked back to the land of Israel and he says, that's really not Israel anymore because my spirit has left them. That's Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what Acts does. Here are baptized Jews. All of these Jews were baptized, but they weren't Christians. And he said, you need to be baptized and you need to become Christians. This was so offensive to the Pharisees because they thought that they were. He was treating them as pagans who needed to come into the church, who needed to come into the true Israel that was being uh, reconstituted. And so in the book of Revelation, Jerusalem is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Um, And so the church really over and over in the New Testament is called the Israel of God. For how many years was the early church, you know, way over 90% Israel? And Gentiles were being grafted in, just like in the book of Esther, it says many Gentiles became Jews. So don't be confused by the New Testament passages that speak of the church as being the Israel of God. There's coming a time, I think, when what's called Israel in the Middle East is going to be converted and they will be natural branches grafted into the church. But it's the church that they left that is the Israel. So why apostles? Because there needs to be 12 patriarchs for the new Israel. Why 120 brethren? Uh, because that was the minimum number of men that it took to make a separate community and they were going to become a separate community and even the spirit would leave and um, tabernacle, not with brick and mortar but with flesh and blood. Um, Why does God organize the New Testament church at the time of Pentecost? Because that's the festival that prophesies the ingathering of the Gentiles. Why did he establish 12 apostles in Luke 9? And the very next chapter he sends out 70 disciples, 70 apostles, as it were, to speak in his name, to represent him. Because again, just as under Moses, there were 12 princes over Israel, but they also needed the 70 elders over Israel. These are constituting the foundation for the new Israel that God's going to set up. And so it's very critical that Matthias be replaced. And we've spent so much time on just the, the building, you know, where does the spirit get poured out? that. We're not even going to get to Matthias today, but he was a true apostle, I believe. And he had to be there so symbolically the church as a whole could have the spirit poured upon them. Now, we'll continue on that uh, on another day, but let's finish off verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Uh, The literal Greek is that these were all persevering in prayer. And it takes perseverance to pray for ten days. (laughs) And we're called the persevering prayer. Next, notice that it's not just the work of the men, but the women are present. Or literally, uh, some translate it, the wives of of the men were present there as well. And notice, third, that they were praying with Mary. They weren't praying to Mary. Okay? (laughs) She is to be honored, but she's not to be worshipped or venerated. She's to be recognized as having a very important role in the redemptive history down through history, but she is not to be prayed to. She submits to the apostles just like all of the other disciples do, and her name doesn't even appear in Scripture anymore after this. Uh, The heresy of Mariolatry that's been invented by the Roman Catholic Church has absolutely no basis in the scripture They say that she was born sinless. She died sinless. She was uh, You know raised on the third day her body did not see corruption. She's sitting in the heavenlies, you know as the queen of heaven And uh, many even now are teaching she's a mediatrix And the scripture knows nothing of that now we shouldn't go to the opposite extreme and say, okay, let's dishonor Mary even though she admits she is a sinner in need of salvation in Luke chapter 1, she is honored in the scripture as being an example of faith to all believers. The fourth thing to notice is that the brothers of Jesus are converted. Verse 14 ends, "And with his brothers." And to me, this is such an encouraging, encouraging word. In Mark three verse 21, his brothers accused him of being out of his mind. They wanted to have him bound. In John 7, 3, his brothers rebuke him. In John 7, 5, it says, For even his brothers did not believe in him. They're unbelievers. And it can be so discouraging to have the people you love the most to be the people who are the hardest ones to get the truth to. You know, it's just uh, very, very discouraging, especially if you're a first-generation believer and you see none of them are buying into the truth. Well, what I want to encourage you with is that even though Jesus did bring division to his own household, as he prophesies will happen when new believers come to Christ in the future, he says that his purpose is to reach the family, the entire family. He did not ignore his family. In fact, uh, all of his brothers not only became believers, but James became a leader in the church in Jerusalem, and he wrote one of the books of the Bible. And his brother Jude wrote another book of the Bible. He reached out to family. Five of the apostles were cousins. And um, I had to put a footnote in the bottom here because uh, if somebody wants me to defend that, I've got all of the logical deductions that show. But five of the apostles were cousins, and there were a couple sets of brothers not related to him. And then six of them came from the same region. Now, what this shows to me is that God's purposes continue to be that he works through families. And he works through associates that are close. And they're the very people that sometimes drive you the most crazy, aren't they? And yet you, by faith, can say, Lord, I claim this family. And I claim these close associates you've brought into my uh, in, into relationship with me. I claim them for you. And um, we can be encouraged by that. Two more quick applications. It's clear from what we've seen so far that in connection with Pentecost, our God is an awesome planner. Just an incredibly awesome planner. From before the foundation of the world, he had planned every detail of this event. He planned exactly how the buildings had to be constructed so there would be able to be a portico there that they could preach from. Uh, He made sure that there was a Levite that was converted so that Jesus would have access to places in the temple where he could preach and the apostles would have access. Uh, the east gate being opened before Jesus walks through it and being closed after he walks through. I mean, there's so many details that he was in control of. And the God who controlled every detail of Pentecost controls every detail of your life today as well. Now, could Herod have messed plans up? Could he have been troubled? Yes, he could have. But God in his providence so controlled Herod. He was anxious to please these Jews. I mean, he poured gobs of money into the building of this temple. Now, could he have built the temple totally wrong? Well, theoretically, yes, but providentially we'd say, no, it's impossible. Uh, Josephus says he was really motivated to please these Jews, so he conformed the plans to the dimensions exactly given in the scriptures. And so we can trust God even today to work through the free work, workings of the evil men all around us to be working it together for our good and for his praise. The last application is we can trust the Bible to be an infallible document. Uh, There's so many. We just barely scratched the surface. And this was kind of a heavier sermon today, but we barely scratched the surface of prophecies that were beautifully fulfilled in the book of Acts. We can trust Old Testament prophecy. We can trust the New Testament. Well, John Gill, an older commentator, said, we've got to live by every word of Scripture and everything that was included here. was intended for our edification. The direction that they traveled, the fact that they returned, the exact distance they traveled, the nature of the upper room, the names of the apostles, you know, that God's work, the grace of work was at work in his disciples' life. All of those were important. And so I want to exhort us to dig deeply and to cherish and live by and love the the scriptures. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the book of Acts. And we thank you that it is, it is a, a wonderful document that speaks about the establishment of your kingdom. I pray that you would help us to uh, understand it and to live it out and to appreciate it. And help me, Father, to be better at preaching it. And may you be glorified in all. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.